This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program's live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, poet and scholar Cameron Awkward Rich discusses his work, which broke new ground in trans, queer, black, and American poetry. He was joined in conversation by curator James Fleming for a live recording on May 31st, 2018. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. All right, so we are going to be spending the next hour exploring some of the in- absolutely incredible writing um, that Cameron has for us um, as you leave tonight. And we'll be talking about um, sort of Cameron's history as a poet, writer, and academic, but also, you know, looking at um, the poetics of identity. Speaking for myself, um, spending time uh, exploring your incredible diverse array of writing has been such a pleasure for me, um, from poetry to um, academic text to lyric lyric essays. Um, And so while I certainly encourage everyone in the audience, as well as this podcast, uh, to check out Cameron's work, uh, I think we should dive right in. How does that sound? Sounds good to me. Cool. Actually, before we dive in, I want to say, uh, I want to give a huge uh, congratulations to Cameron, who just won a massive award. Um, and this award, uh, the 2018 Lexi Rudnitsky. Secretly, I don't actually know how to pronounce that. Yeah. We're going with Rudn- <laughs> Rudn- Rudn- Rudnitsky. I don't know. Um, the Editor's Choice Award uh, for his next book, Dispatch. So... I say we give a round of applause for Cameron. <laughs> Thank you. This is the unofficial party for the new book launch. We're going a sad to the party. bar after, yeah. <laughs> Very yeah. serious party. Right. So I think, why don't we start there? Um, maybe you can speak to us a little bit about Dispatch. Yeah. Um, well, the problem is that now, now that I know that this is going to perhaps be in the internet, it... it, it It's hard for me to tell the truth, but I will. I'll say that the truth is that I accidentally won that book prize because I was looking at a Word document in my computer, and I was like, is this a book? I don't know. And then I printed it out, shuffled around the pages, and was like, is this a book? I don't know. And so I decided to do what all people do when they are alone uh, all the time, which is I sent it out into the internet, hoping that some editor somewhere else would tell me whether or not it was a book. Um, and apparently it is. Um, it's, uh, so I haven't sat with it long enough to be able to give the sort of pithy, uh, assessment of what it is about, but, um, probably deep, deep underneath it is about, um, how to maintain intimacy across all kinds of virtual distances, right? So the distance of the internet, but also historical distances, categorical distances. Um, On the surface, it's just a book about how often I am alone and how terrible the state of the world is right now and how I stare at my computer screen and um, can't deal with how terrible the world is. But underneath, I think that it's about like, how do you maintain intimacy despite the sort of terror of the world? and how far away everyone you love is, whether they be far away in time or space. It's this being the first time that we've talked about dispatch, it's so interesting to hear you uh, sort of frame the new work within this context of um, perceived distance uh, through communication, through digital spaces, especially because so much of your work looks at the assumed or inherited distances that language that the language we use just you know that every single day we walk through the world we define ourselves we define the world around us um, with words and language that can be extraordinarily distancing yeah it's true I mean 
right? It's every book is the sequel to the book you've already written. But I think that this one is much more sort of interested in like concrete distances, like, oh, woe is me. My friends are scattered across the country. How do I, um, how do I maintain relationships with them? Or, oh, woe is me. Um, the historical record of trans people is fragmented and hard to access. And so how do I talk to these people uh, who I can only reach through these like newspaper accounts that frame them as being just like weirdos who are like singular anomalies, right? So I have a bunch of poems in that book that are sort of trying to talk to these people that I came across in like 19th century newspaper articles being like, how do do I talk to you, you person who is like familiar to me in some way, but also is utterly, utterly distant. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it it reminds me of how, I mean, so many marginalized communities, especially in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years have um, sort of organically formed in these digital spaces. And these are people from all over the world that um, find that one YouTube channel um, that has someone talking about their experience. And then all of a sudden, you know, these Tumblr communities are formed and, you know, these chat threads that oftentimes last years where people who are I mean, just speaking for myself, growing up in a very rural part of Minnesota, you uh, are pining for that type of connection. So that's really cool. Now, you've spent many years in the Bay Area. I know you're on the East Coast now, um, but you you were based in Oakland um, while you were finishing your PhD at Stanford. Um, Maybe you can talk to me about, you know, what it was like to be both an academic and a poet in the Bay Area. Yeah, so I actually, um, it, weirdly, I think that I only really lived in Oakland for two years, um, even though most of my life was conducted in Oakland for like five or six years. Um, uh, it was deeply weird. I know that we're not supposed to acknowledge the fact that audience is here because uh, theoretically this is happening in the in the cloud now, but <laughs> I see here are some people who I went to school with at Stanford, and I think that they can agree with me that it is like a deeply strange uh, place uh, that has um, way too much money and is really invested in displaying all of its wealth all the time and also covering over the fact that any labor has to go into the maintaining of its just like, surface pristine thing like I don't know nobody needs to know this but there are palm trees that cost like tens of thousands of dollars and then they they imported from somewhere else and because those palm trees aren't native to this particular part of California they cost like tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to maintain but like also the people who do all the work to maintain those palm trees do it at night I think probably so that nobody ever sees them doing it Anyway, all this to say that doing the commute from Oakland to Palo Alto um, for those years was like deeply bewildering to me because there are spaces whose relationship to race and wealth are just like fundamentally different. Um, And I felt like I never really had a sense of who I was kind of moving between those two spaces because people's perceptions of me changed so much depending on whether I was in the country club or, um, you know, at MacArthur Bart. Um, yeah, so, 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 I mean, this is a long, a long way of saying that it was a deeply strange experience. Um, and I think that a lot of, a lot of um, the preoccupations of Sympathetic Little Monster come out of just sort of this feeling of not knowing who I was ever that was like a direct product of like transitioning, sure, but also of the train ride back and forth between Palo Alto and Oakland. I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm going to stop talking. No, absolutely. I mean, mean, in in many of the poems, there's this, um, there's this sort of continuous sense of movement and um, there are poems that directly address the the commute of, of, sort of watching worlds pass and then having to not only reckon with, you know, as an individual moving through those spaces, but also holding account for how these, you know, these spaces are changing and and our complicity and our ownership and um, how we're subject to them, um, which is really interesting. Now, you, 
while you were based in Oakland, you were you were super involved in the slam poetry scene. Uh, maybe you're smiling at me. I don't know. It's it's because we've had we've had this conversation over beers. No, I'm kidding. Um, but it is kind of true, though. This yeah. is part of what's weird about this conversation. I mean, we're just going to talk about it right now so that we can like move forward. Is that you all are watching us have a conversation, and also this is a conversation that in part we have already had before. Um, so it's a very meta performance piece. But anyway, yes, right. slam. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. And I guess the last thing I'll say on that note is that, it, I mean, it really is, I think just even acknowledging that is sort of central to the topic at hand, which is under, which is exploring the, the poetics of identity and, and how, you know, the structures through which we understand and look at identity are always in flux and they're always relying on these sort of meta performances. And so I guess we're living that here we are. Here we are constructing our identity for this audience right, right. here. Yeah. <laughs> nice pretending like we haven't already done it. I know. We're getting there. <laughs> but yes, okay, so let's let, let's talk slam poetry. You know. Okay. Okay, we can talk about slam. Um, yeah, so I just last night, I did a reading at the Berkeley Slam, um, which uh, takes place at the Starry Plow every Wednesday. Um, <laughs> and when I first was a graduate student at Stanford, um, I so I don't drive, which makes all of this much more dramatic, right? So I didn't like most of the people that were in my immediate periphery, um, mostly because I just was like too young um, to be hanging out with the people who were my cohort members. I mean, I liked them a lot, but like we weren't going to be friends, you know. Um, and also I was like really craving an artistic community, which is something that I didn't know how to find in Palo Alto. So uh, every Wednesday I did this like funny sojourn to the Starry Plow in Berkeley, um, which involved like biking to the train station and then taking the Caltrain to BART and then taking the BART. And then, because inevitably the show goes like after the last Caltrain runs, I wound up having to take like a bus down to Redwood City and then biking from Redwood City to Palo Alto. Anyway, it was like oh, this like elaborate like twelve-hour excursion just so that I could like have a creative community. Um, but I fell into. Uh, a world which is like de deeply strange, like all worlds, but um, the slam scene in the Bay. Um, I met some of my dearest friends there. Um, it was a place where I felt like, I don't know, I think that it's like really where I developed my like voice as an artist, right? I like was a creative writing major in undergrad, but I spent so much of my undergraduate career trying to figure out like how to do like postmodern poetry moves. So I was always like, how do I make this poem into like a little puzzle that like nobody can figure out? Um, <laughs> but then being in SLAM, it, I became really interested in, um, you know, like how do I take my singular experience and make it relatable to these people in this bar, right? How do I use my voice as somebody who's like, I mean, my literal voice, right? As somebody who's like kind of quiet, as somebody who, um, makes a lot of jokes, I think, but most people don't get them. Like, how do I use what I have to work with in order to, like, bring people into my orbit and how to bring people into some sort of emotional experience with me? So, yeah, I mean, I think that SLAM taught me, it, it taught me how to be a poet that other people could care about, right, as opposed to a poet who was just really interested in, like, how do I make this seem complicated? Um, yeah. Anyway, I did that for a long time. I was on two, three, two, two National Poetry Slam teams for the Bay. I coached, sort of, one uh, slam team here uh, for the National Poetry Slam. Uh, and then I already had my friends, so I no longer had to do it. <laughs> and, and I'm interested in... Uh, I mean, just last night you were at a slam event and, and you presented some of your poetry there. And so there's sort of this moment of coming full circle and, you know, having gone on to do some really incredible things in, um, 
you know, academia, how, how have you felt your voice change? How have you felt it transform in that context, having now coming back? Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm just more confident in doing the things that I wanna do. I'm, I think that maybe the first two or three years of being in SLAM was all sort of about like, how do I write a SLAM poem? Um, which, uh, if you really care about SLAM, there are a lot of people who will say, there's no such thing as a SLAM poem, or like, whatever. But I think that it's like a genre, like any other genre. Um, the way that I knew how to write a SLAM poem was like, you make a joke, and then you heighten the stakes by like introducing some sort of like sorrow or anger or something. And then you like bring it together into like a moment of catharsis, right? Slam poems work in all kinds of ways, but like that's the way I knew how to do it. Um, so for a while, most things I was writing like kind of fit into that pattern. Um, uh, but now I feel like much more confident in just sort of getting on a stage and being myself, even if you are in a bar um, because I know, I don't know, I've like had enough experience to know that like I can command people's attention and if I can't, then it doesn't really matter. For sure. Now, um, before we move on to Sympathetic Little Monster, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you about your work in, you know, over the, you know, over the last couple years studying your, your dissertation, uh, The Politics and Poetics of Bad Feelings in Trans Theory and Literature. I mean, this is a really fascinating subject, and it's one that I would love to hear you elucidate on. T t tell me about your studies, essentially. Oh, man. Um, well, the medium-length version of it is that when I was an undergraduate, I don't know. I feel like trans studies had just sort of had started getting its legs in maybe 2005, 2006. So a lot of, not a lot, but like the handful of professors at my undergraduate institution who like cared about gender and sexuality studies had just started like assigning trans studies stuff because they were like, this is something we have to care about. Um, but I always found those accounts deeply unsatisfying. And one of the things that I found deeply unsatisfying about them was the sort of insistence, and I mean, it's like a politically like important insistence, right? Like I get it, I totally understand, but like the insistence that um, trans identity is distinct from, okay, how, let me say this another way, that um, in order to build like a viable trans movement, in the 90s, it was like kind of important for people to disaggregate trans identity from like mental illness, right? And I mean, I think that this is a conversation that happens on Twitter all the time now, um, but has been happening since, I don't know, the 90s at least, but before then too, um, the question of whether or not uh, gender identity disorder and now gender dysphoria should be in the DSM, whether or not um, trans people should or should not be able to appeal for protection under disability law, right? Um, I think that these are like complicated legal and political questions, but um, being somebody who's interested in language, I was really interested in why it was that the rhetorical move, right? Like I'm not sick was the sort of precondition for the doing of trans studies. Um, because that move to me seemed both like sort of flatly ableist, but also it shuts down the possibility that what we think of as disordered ways of thinking are like legitimate or could produce something like usable knowledge, right? Um, and so what my dissertation is interested in, right, is both kind of historicizing this move, right? Going, I like spend a lot of time looking in archives and being like, here was this like funny trans organization that were having this like funny debate about whether or not um, it was good or bad that trans people were excluded from the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and here are these other people having this funny debate about whether or not uh, trans people should be in the DSM. Um, so, I, so I do that kind of work, but mostly what I'm interested in is thinking about, okay, how do the kind of bad feelings, and by bad I mean both kind of like 
experientially painful, but also like potentially pathologized, right? So like uh, depression, uh, post-traumatic kind of like um, disturbances of identity, all of these things that we kind of associate with trans people, but want to say like, it's just society, um, has nothing to do with us as like a category, which like probably is true, but like I'm interested in the question of like, how do those ways of thinking and feeling help us to reframe questions within trans theory? Um, so like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, th that's kind of like the high level, that, that that's the sort of meta level question is that like I'm interested in whether or not it makes sense to like start the trans theoretical project and the trans political project from the insistence that we are not sick. Um, and I, I think I say no, but I think that it's like a complicated question. Is that, you know, is that an answer? It reminds me of quite a, you know, quite a few of your poems, and it's interesting to now, you know, sort of um, consider the work that you were doing in this space along with the development of Sympathetic Little Monster and there being these really fascinating ties between, you know, the hyper-interior and personal, but then also looking at, you know, a, a much larger movement and sort of the origin or the development of that movement. And something that uh, you tackle quite frequently in your book is the sense that um, it's sort of restructuring our relationship to um, failure or to disintegration or to you know a, a slew of these words that we would assume to be uh, words experienced in a in a hyper negative state, um, but rather that these moments and these experiences and, and these instances um, are fountains of entire paradigms of knowledge that you know we tend to uh, prefer to cut out uh, in whether it's our artistry or in you know the work um, in the academy and so I just I, I find that really interesting yeah I mean it is true that sympathetic little monster is basically my academic book except written in poems and about my small sorrows uh, as opposed to written in essay and about other people's larger sorrows mm -hmm. yeah this is the real dissertation y'all yeah condensed yeah. version <laughs> um, I think with that sort of in the back of our minds it would be lovely to hear you uh, read a few poems sure. from sympathetic sure I can do that um, let's let's hear you read uh, the which is one of the first poems in the book um, the girl is brought to her knees in a field of grass oh yeah be a great way to start that is that is the first poem um the girl is brought to her knees in a field of glass. I could give her a name. I could cross out this story, cut the sentence short, and her knees are wet with nothing due. I could close the zipper. I could plant a long-stemmed rose between his thighs, trade her throat for a wasp nest, let them leave the story wrecked, erase enough the girl's black ink encased in snow. She could freeze there. I could change the ending. Daffodils, marigolds. What better place to start? Brought to her knees and crowned with gold. I'm sorry. I have to unlock the room now. Let the boy play his favorite song. Split the girl from her shadow. Give him a story of his own. Feel free to sing along. You know the words. Yeah, okay. Bridge. When she is a child, her father drives for hours to sit with the bridge. When she is still a child, full of hot tar, tells her she is the only reason he did not jump. Her answer, pulled unflinching from the city she carried there. The river will so often open for another body Swallow it so gently, but the pavement would have ruined you. You tell this story over and over. It is easy, as if it explains something, anything about water or having once been your father's girl. You will tell it again, as if the telling will wear your cruelty into grief, smooth and plain. And what you leave out always is when she is still a child, the tar cooling and hardening into an unfamiliar shape, 
She dreams for years, every sidewalk rising to meet him like a swollen river. What you leave out is the deep bruise of the city as he splays and opens inside you. It is only a dream. The nightmare is the version in which his falling is perpetual. When I am a child, when I am a child over and over as if the wet tar smell, the city carried, scraped and empty. And you hate it, your body or your father. I love that you went to Bridge after reading the first poem, um, especially because there's a moment in both of those poems. There's sort of a hinge and the introduction of story, both the word, but also as a um, sort of mechanism for pivoting the poem in a different direction occurs. And in the first poem, you have this moment where the door unlocks and sort of the, the trajectory goes toward um, giving a poem to the boy, or I'm sorry, giving a story to the boy as sort of the path forward. Um, and then in Bridge, there's this moment where, you know, you go from this like this, this hyper intense series of images into you tell the story over and over. And it, it's a, sort of a hard shift. And perhaps you can speak a little bit to sort of how you used story in that sense in, in both of those poems. Um. People always ask me questions about like, what were you doing in that poem? And I hardly ever know. Um, but I guess a kind of meta answer I can give you um, is that, I mean, obviously this book tries to be not only a kind of transition narrative, but like at its core, that's what it is. Um, and so one of my kind of anxieties about writing it was just like, the fact that there is a kind of predefined narrative or story for like how transition occurs. Um, so often, I mean, I think that partially what's going on in both of those poems is like a, um, an anxiety about, okay, so is this a story about the kind of boy taking over the narrative from the girl? Um, is this a story about um, replaying all of the kind of like weird childhood, like intense images? Um, and I and I think that I like, uh, I think that the reason I use story so much like in this collection as a whole is because I really wanted to figure out how to use, I mean, like, like you said, you, you said that really well, how to use the idea of narrative as a hinge point rather than... Um, trying to like just like write a narrative if that makes sense I, like like narrative was like an idea as opposed to the thing that I was trying to do um yeah so I mean I think that both of them are just sort of anxieties about like we all know what's going on here but how do I do something different for sure and there's this sense um this sort of diving this is diving right into sympathetic little monster but I would I I would say uh I feel like I'm talking to like the archivist of my life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it kind of felt that way in both a, a, a strange and exciting and also very bizarre way of, um, so we're, we're going to go back to the book in a second, but, but sort of this moment um, where, you know, given the context of an evening like this, you're sort of, um, you're sort of given time to read everything that you have ever written such that we're ready to talk about just about anything. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, it's interesting, you know, go, going back to the book, looking at, um, I think both of those poems are sort of really, really incredible examples of this almost like symbolist uh, catalog of um, objects and uh, um, interactions with objects that you sort of develop throughout the entirety of the book. And it leads to the sort of, um, magnificent series of final poems and so um, you know when when you look at story as it when you look at the sort of definition or the ontology of a story and you use that as a mechanism within a poem I see you doing that um, with many other things you know in the in the first poem this you know wasps nest daffodils marigolds you know being crowned with gold and sort of those Im images repeating throughout, um, not only just the poem, but also the rest of the book. And so perhaps you can sort of speak to, um, you know, those 
speak to the catalog of objects and symbols that you developed in this writing? Uh, no. I mean, I don't know if I can. <laughs> uh, well, I think, I mean, part of it is just sort of like re returning to the problem, right, of like essentially writing a transition narrative and not wanting to do that is that part of what I'm trying to do is to build a world um, that this character of the little girl who is. So for all of you, uh, I read this first poem, which is the girl is brought to her knees in a field of glass. But then throughout the book, there is like a, a kind of a narrative sequence that all of the titles are the little girl X, right? The little girl, the uh, can't remember the titles of my own poems, but the little girl is always doing stuff. She is having dreams. She's having questions. She's like trying to figure out what the world is. Um, so part of the project of the book, right, is to like both have a narrative, but also like build a world for that narrative to happen in. So the catalog of objects is like harshly just about building a world that this character is interacting with. Um, partially, it's probably a bunch of thievery, you know? Um, uh, sort of not seriously, but also deeply seriously. I often say that <laughs> most of my writing is just sort of stolen from writing that I love. Um, I think that when I was reading this book, uh, or not reading this book, when I was writing this book, I was reading um, Eli Shipley's who's another like transmasculine poet, I was reading his book, which is called Boy with Flowers. Um, and I was also reading this book by Lauren Berry called The Lifting Dress, which um, changed the way that I thought about what a book was. Um, so I think that incidentally, probably a lot of the objects in this book were stolen from those books without my full knowledge of that thievery. I certainly, I certainly would not consider that thievery. I mean, great. Right. <laughs> How many poems have you read, like with roses in them? Right. Yeah, like that's true. Roses are all of ours, at least. Um, that's my stance. Great. Yeah. I mean, that's my stance also. But I, but I guess sometimes it feels more like thievery when I know retrospectively I can trace a direct line between having read a book and written a thing. I mean, I, I sort of love that you directly brought that up, especially w when I think of writing, when I think of art in the Bay Area at present, there is, um, and especially in, you know, queer communities, there's this sense, there's this urgency around lineage and this urgency around legacy and looking back on, you know, the histories of artists and creatives in the city and um, how quickly those communities and those spaces are disappearing, um, you know, invoking the, those who have inspired us or those who came before us is like, a, it's, a very, it's a very topical thing that's happening. It's happening at drag shows, it's happening at parties, it's happening in the poetry. And so, um, you know, I'd, I would be interested to hear, you know, you directly talk about that sort of creative lineage that you see in your writing. Um. Yeah, I mean, definitely I can say that um, because I was once a, like, strange, uncertain, quiet, shy, black child who, like, didn't quite know how to be in the world, um, writers like James Baldwin and Randall Cannon and, um, I mean, mostly them, um, kind of made me feel like, oh, there's this whole kind of literary... Uh, precedent for the kind of shy, strange black child that I am. Um, I think there are a bunch of mostly white, like strange white women poets who I am sort of always deeply in conversation with, like Sharon Olds and um, Lauren Berry probably wouldn't count herself in that, um, but she is that to me. Um, Anne Carson, certainly. Um, but also, I think that I'm like deeply lucky because I have really great friends. Um, I think that a lot of the time people are like disappointed because mm, 
I think that for a lot of people, the idea of having heroes is like really important, like having people who sort of did the thing that you're doing before you. But actually, like, I think that most of my greatest inspirations and most of my greatest loves are like horizontal ones. Um, my friends Sam Sachs, Dana Smith, Brandy Troy, Hanif Abdurraqib, uh, Safia Elhio, Kava Akbar. I don't know. Like I like I think that there are like so many like amazing brown, like mostly brown, black and brown, mostly queer in some way poets like writing right now that uh, it just like feels like an amazing moment to like sort of look around and say like look here are all of these people doing the thing that I love and doing it well and like trying very hard to be like good people um and yeah so I'd say that most of my inspirations are sort of like say but like I don't know not at all <laughs> I don't know no I think that's not, I mean that's excellent yeah and I think that's I mean it speaks to um I mean it speaks to excellence it's it, it speaks to the um, communities that you've surrounded yourself with and you've grown with. And I know in our conversations in the last couple of days, um, I think something that's something that I so love about your writing and, and your work as a poet is, is sort of this uh, ambivalence to um, trajectory I don't I don't know if that's worded correctly but this this sort of la this lack of interest in like oh well now I've got to go win more awards and like you know I need, I need to tour the world with my poetry right and like, maybe if I could affect that persona I'd yeah. be way more interested in winning awards <laughs> yeah but but, but you, you continually go back to this sort of the, this sense of um um you know, writing as a, a pathway to understand the self, but then also as a pathway to understand kin and, and the family that um, not only you have, but that you've created. And I, I don't know, it's, it's refre that's refreshing to me. Um, in, in a time when young artists spend and have to spend so much work, um, you know, with a, with a megaphone, um, you know, cutting across the noise and communicating out into the world what they're doing. Um, it's true. I mean, I have both been, like, deeply lucky and, um, yeah, like, I, <laughs> I mean, it, it, knowing how hard it is to be a creative in any sort of way these days, right, like, knowing how hard the academic job market is, right? Knowing how hard um, it is to like kind of cut through the noise. I, I just like know that I have been deeply lucky because I have for the most part just been doing what I want. And then eventually I leave my bedroom and I show someone the thing that I've been doing and they say, okay, I guess so, Cameron. And um, <laughs> I don't know why that that's, I don't know why that has been the way that things have gone, but like, um, yeah, I mean, I think that I'm deeply lucky to be able to live the life that I've been living because I don't have the kind of skills one needs to be a smooth networker, you know? You'll never, you'll, you'll, ne you'll, you'll never see me at the cocktail party, um, or if I was there, something would have gone horribly wrong. And this sort of gets at, um, you know, one of, you, you alluded to this approach in your writing, looking at time in a different way and, and looking at um, the space one needs, um, you know, not only physically, but just in, in a temporal way, the, the amount of space and time that it takes for you to do your work. And that being often in direct opposition to a lot of the um, larger influences or forces that play for young poets and writers today. Um, it's true. Every everything, I mean, everything in every writing industry requires that you're like always producing, always doing things, always like manufacturing yourself for an audience, and um, uh, yeah, that seems to me to be like counter to doing the work, right? It seems to me counter to like deep thought and figuring out how not only to like write but write well. Like all, all of these things take time and take a little bit of solitude, I think. Um, Sort of reminds me of um, 
uh, Sarah Ahmed's work um, look, looking at uh, the use of use and looking at utility and, and trying to unpack how historically utility as a concept has been used to construct hierarchies, um, correct use or the correct definition of how something is used or how one does something, um, you know, marginalizing communities and elevating other communities. And, and so, you know, with that in mind, it's, um, it's almost like a call to action to take time you know, to, to move yeah, slower yeah. and to and to choose not to, um, you know, attack your work through the lens of that sort of utilitarian. I must produce more. I must produce more. I must pr produce more. It's true. I mean, I think I think that is a privilege and a luxury to be able to make that choice, right? Um, but I think maybe I'm going to use that as a segue into reading another poem which addresses precisely this issue. <laughs> um, well, sort of. Um, so for those of you listening and also for those of you right here, I'm gonna read a poem um, which is about my last name. So my last name is Awkward Rich, which is like a deeply bizarre name. Um, I have never met another person outside of my like immediate family with the last name Awkward. Um, sometimes people like on Facebook with like, very similar names, but like one of the W's has been removed, will friend me. But anyway, we're all black, which is like um, weird, right? Because like we all know how black people in this country got our names. Uh, either it was like taking, like having, like taking on the name of a slave owner or taking on the name of like the occupation that your family did after that. Um, or I mean, some people just like made up names, but like who names themselves awkward, right? Like that just seems like a like a deeply, like why would you do that? So anyway, <laughs> my family has this whole like sort of mythology about, I mean, precisely this, like use and usefulness um, and the name awkward. Um, and it's a story that my father's mother liked to tell, which was that like once upon a time there was a slave and in order to like be able to get out of doing work that he thought was dangerous, that would like kill him, he would just kind of like dramatically fling himself off of a ladder in order to like seem to be incompetent, right? And that um, that it was like this performance of awkwardness, right? This performance of incompetency that let him persist. Um, I don't really think that that is a true story, but it's a nice story. Um, and so this poem is sort of about that. It's also sort of about how nobody believes that my identification is real because my last name is weird. Um, essay on the awkward black object after M. Awkward, my father. There are at least two theories about love. Both begin as violence. The subject encounters the object and a slit opens inside him, love at first sight. Harriet's master sees her as if for the first time and now must have her. She wakes in the night to a terrible face rising above her, a wasted moon. The question is, once made into an object for the other, how can the thing for itself survive? In the airport, the bar, the movie theater, the grocery store, someone looks at you, your face, then your face in the plastic of your card, then the card, then the card, then you are caught in the frame of their looking, sealed between two panes of glass. You don't know what has caused the moment to harden around you, not this time, but then someone chuckles, lets you pass. Everyone wants to know the story of my name, everyone. It's a nigger joke, you know. You already know the story. A man is made into a thing and sutured to it, the name. There's another option. It's not the truth, though it might be, which is, in the end, what matters. Now, when the thing is made to do dangerous work, he flings its body from the low rungs of a ladder, limbs akimbo and fluttering and still alive. Someone is talking to you. It hardly matters about what. Hand on your hand and you recognize the smile. You stutter, mumble, don't look them in the eye. You fall away from the moment as if pulled by a law governing the motion of your body. You can't help it. You're not in control. Give your name as proof. 
the verb work, meaning perform labor and or function properly. As long as the object works, it is bound to its own annihilation. The solution, fall, fall apart, decay. Harriet wasting in the garret, the slave caught in perpetual flight, the body opening to receive the bullet, the monster killing its maker and returning to the certainty of ice. Don't misunderstand. I don't hate white people. Nothing here resembles hate or freedom from hate. Love, after all, is all you need. A nigger walks into a bar. A nigger falls off of a ladder. A nigger is named for its inability to function, to work. You get the joke right. Awkward is both punishment and method, the unending flight from you to I. We haven't made it to the punchline. Everyone is waiting. Everyone wants resolution for the poem to click shut. Who gets the last word? Who, in the end, dictates the story? I'm sorry. I really don't know. So I find this, this poem absolutely brilliant. Um, and one of the reasons is because there's this, um, you, sort, you, you sort of take the subject and then you, you literally construct the subject as through, through the duration of the poem. And so you, you sort of have this moment of kind of going up the rungs on the ladder and then this, this instance where you sort of redefine work. You, re, you redefine work's relationship to the eye, and then there's a sort of like this flinging off and like letting go, and and I think I mean get, get, literally getting to the core components of you know the poetics of identity. I'm I'm interested in how how like how did this poem come together, and how did you structure it, you know, in in that way? Oh man, I don't know seems like you probably know better than I do. I think that I had the first lines stuck in my head. Um, there are these two theories about love, both begin as violence. Um, I knew that I was writing a poem about my name. I knew that I was interested in the way that, um, the way that this sort of intentional violence, right, was both I mean, okay, so I mean, I think I think that like one thing that's true about identity general, like the way that we like have all of our categories, right, our nice little categories is that they all rely fundamentally on there having been some sort of violence, right? Like blackness only makes sense in the context of the middle passage. Um, gender only makes sense in the context of what we might think of as the sort of violent div dividing of um, like um, people's social capacities. Um, and yet we like cling to those labels because we need them in order to like live in the world that we have built um, because they're both enabling and violent. And so I guess I was interested in my name, right? And the way that it was the same sort of thing. Um, it was both a kind of enabling thing and also deeply tied to a particular kind of violence. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I think that I just had, I had all of these ideas in my head and then I sat down or rather I walked around the block for a long time talking to myself and then eventually I had something like a poem. You know, re related to the sort of hi the history behind this poem, um, as well as your relationship to your father, I think that's something that has been, um, you know, you, you, you talk about how that relationship was absolutely core to you becoming a writer and a poet. Um, perhaps you can if you're interested, speak to that. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the weird things about this book, I mean, one of the weird things about like most first books, right, is that they're all like, oh, my parents, how they've wounded me. Um, and I mean, I think that a lot of this book is like, like about how my father and I had a, what felt to me like a deep conflict over my, first my queerness and then my transness. Um, that was like especially hard precisely for this reason because my dad is like the person to whom I am closest in the world. He is like, he is like the person who is me, you know? Um, so he's also a writer, he's also an academic. Um, he's like, yeah, 
I mean, I, I think that I grew up thinking like, what are you doing? Like, what is this? What is like, what is your job? Like, what do you do? <laughs> you, you sit, you sit in your office surrounded by all of these books. You like have these conversations that like literally nobody else in our immediate social sphere cares about. Um, why are you doing this? Uh, one of my like first memories is like him being really excited about his book being translated into Japanese. And I was like, I don't care. I am five years old. Like, <laughs> like why, why would I care? Yeah. Um, all of that being said, <laughs> I think that like um, he taught me to love like like uh, with a lot of conflict. Right. He taught me to love reading. He he was the one who didn't quite have words for the kind of predicament that I was in as like a black queer child in like a predominantly white space and he just like sort of uh, kept handing me novels being like maybe this will help what about this what about this and eventually it did you know and eventually I learned that um, the reason he did his job was because he also was once a shy strange black kid in a place where all he had was the kind of life of his mind um, like that was the thing that saved him me um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, so many poems in here are like, oh, I'm a dad, but it's just because he's the reason I am here in like more than just biological ways, you know. There's a sense, um, you know, I, I particularly loved uh, how you described sort of, you know, your relationship to poetry and literature at large being um, a core reason why you're, you're here. And I think that's true for for many people, um, and perhaps some people in this room, and certainly some people listening to this. Um, and so with that in mind, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear from you sort of, wh where do you see the role of you know, intersectional queer poetry and writing? Um, where do you see um, you know, the writers of today moving forward into the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, right, there cannot be one role of the writer of any kind. Um, I think that the things people are doing include writing books that speak to audiences that feel like they can't find themselves in most of the stuff that is taught in high school or most of the stuff that if you walk around in a bookstore you can find, right? Like, I think that that is like a deeply important function of like inter intersectional work is just sort of like here you are child like you have existed before and you have elders and you have a history um i think that also a lot of the work that people are doing is not only a like like a lot of it is future oriented in this way in, in a different way which is sort of like i don't know not to be lofty about it but i think that like one of the important things that art does, like especially speculative work and poetry and all these things is like it helps us to think thoughts that have not yet been thought, right? I mean, and I guess maybe I think that that's like the role of like theory also, um, all of these like sort of creative genres that are interested in like imagining what a better world would be, what better social, like better ways of interacting with each other might be, what better frameworks for thinking about X, Y, or Z might be like, I mean, I think that that's like an important role of art. And I think that having more kind of queer of color or whatever identity categories you want to put in it, uh, circulating just means that there are more, there's like more material to think our way out of the horror <laughs> of right now, right? Um, I think that also a lot of people have been doing really great kind of like rescuing of the past. Um, I just read, what did I read? Voyage of the Sable Venus um, by Robin, Scott, Robin Cost Lewis. And that whole book, I mean, it's like these like gorgeous poems that frame a really long poem that she calls a narrative poem, which I guess it sort of is, but which is basically just kind of like a, a catalog of every instance of a black woman or girl in art. And... And so it's like an incredible research project that like just like drags up the past, right? And plops it right there in the center of this book. 
Um, and I think that that work of like dredging up the past and being like, not only do you have a future, but you also have a past is, yeah. Um, it's a foundation. I mean, it, it, it gives young thinkers and creatives the resources so that they don't have to start. It's true. And I mean, I think that also another thing that it does is that like, um, one of the things that happens today and has always happened is that people are always like, never before have we seen XYZ problem or like never before have there has there been this explosion of like trans kids or like never before has there been XYZ. And I mean, I think that the like work of dredging up the past is to be like, actually, listen, we've been having this conversation about whatever for like hundreds of years and that it's actually a deep intellectual laziness to begin any kind of premise with like never before has X, Y, or Z because like always before X, Y, or Z. Um, and so I, I mean, I think that that's something that artists have been doing recently that is like really important, especially because like most people aren't going to like go to the gay and lesbian archives or read like a 300 page book about whatever, but like a lot of people read poems and they'll be like, aha, I see that we've actually done this already. Um, and I think that's an important thing to do in order to move a conversation along. And I think we're, we're looking to wrap up here and sort of in, in that exact same vein, you are off on an exciting new adventure this fall. It's true. I don't know if it's an adventure, but it is exciting. <laughs> I posit that it's going to be an adventure. You're, right. you're off to teach at a university. That's true. Um, and perhaps you can speak to, um, you know, what what how how you are looking into the future, um, both as you know a poet, but also as a professor. Yeah. So what James is referring to is that I got a job as an assistant professor of women, gender, sexuality studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm really excited about it. They, uh, I will teach classes in trans studies and trans literature and writing, um, hopefully disability studies also. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that one of the things that graduate school does is it makes it really hard to imagine that there will be a future and it will work out. You know, I mean, it might also just be that like I at my core am a depressive and so have never been able to imagine that there is something like the future unless somebody just like sits down in front of me and is like, it's okay, Cameron, everything's going to be fine. I'm like, oh, well, so there's a long way of saying while I'm excited about it, I have no idea what it will be like uh, other than moving to Northampton, which I'm very much looking forward to because I will live in a place where I only have to walk downstairs and there will be three coffee shops as opposed to where I'm living now, where, I don't know. Anyway, I'm looking forward to this new adventure, mostly because I'm looking forward to having students and being in an institution long enough to like develop a relationship with students. One of the weird things about the sort of transient life is that you don't you're never long enough, you're never anywhere long enough to build a relationship with the community, to build a relationship with students, with other faculty members. So I'm looking forward to doing that regardless of what happens. May, perhaps you could, would you be interested in reading a final poem? Sure. Um, yeah. To sort of that, to that sounds like together? A, that sounds like a much better thing to um, do. I'm perhaps thinking Girl with Flowers. Sure. Yeah. I can read that. Girl with Flowers in Oakland, California. There are always flowers blooming in this city, a kind of cruelty. After all, how do you know when it's time for tears? For carving a hole beneath a snowbank and living there for just a while. A girl ends and still there are roses. A boy is carried off in roses and all the while I ride the train. I get on in the morning and get off and it's still morning but a different season altogether sun-drenched always, though I darken every room. And it's not so bad, just look outside, how terribly gorgeous it all is. Outside the window of my new apartment, there are children singing the same sweet song. And I don't know the words, but they pierce my heart until I'm such a useless dam, and oh, I could tell you so much. But for now, there's just one girl, 
one solitary girl racing her shadow across the blacktop. One of these mornings, I know she'll win, and I'll turn my back on the window and be finished with poems where, in the end, a girl disappears from the story, even if this morning she does. All right. Um, we're going to be moving to a Q&A, but I'd first like to just give a massive thank you to Cameron. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.